Uh, so I, I wonder, when you hear the word divorce, what sort of gut reaction do you have? What do you, what do you think about divorce? I imagine a, a group this size, there's a wide range of just gut responses. For some people, it might be shame. They've experienced divorce, and they, they just feel like there's this light shining on them and, and says, you're, you're bad. You shouldn't have done that. For some, it might be hurt or sadness. Whether that, whether that you went through a divorce or maybe your parents did, you, you were collateral damage in that sense, and you experienced the heartache of it and the pain, and it's saddening to you to think about. <clears throat> there might be others who sort of have this feeling of, I, I wish I could pursue that. Because frankly, my spouse is not fun to live with. I suppose some people here could be, have the sense of fear because they live with this fear that at, at any moment around the corner, their spouse might actually do this and pursue divorce. Maybe that's because you're upbringing and you experience a lot of divorce around you, but you have this sense of, I'm afraid that this is going to happen to me and my spouse will leave me. Maybe for others, it's sort of a, meh. It just happens. I, I don't really think much about it. I'm not, not for it or against it necessarily. It's just, it's just what it is. People are sinners. And for others, maybe, maybe there's a disgust. You hear about divorce and you see the statistics and you're disgusted with it. And maybe that's a, a, a self-righteous disgust. And it's, we're not those people and we won't be those people. How dare they? And I'm sure there's a lot of other responses. Uh, the, the, the reality is, as we come to a passage like this, and it, it can be a little bit thorny, right? Because we kind of come to it with a little bit of emotion uh, to this idea of the question that they're asking Jesus about divorce. And then when we hear his comments back, uh, we have to deal with that. But at, at Crossway, we want to be under God's word. So as best we can, we want to leave our own opinions and thoughts on the side, and we come and say, God, what do you declare to be true and right? And that is what we, we will hold. So that's what we want to do today. Um, I think you can sum up this passage as Jesus really not necessarily like answering to focus on divorce, but to say the power to pursue marriage as God intended comes when we know ourselves as unworthy recipients of the kingdom of God. Or if you want power to actually pursue marriage as God intended, it will come when you know yourself as the very unworthy bride of Jesus himself. That's where the power will come. And so we'll make our way through the passage, and hopefully you'll see uh, that. I'm beginning in verse 1 again. Just, we'll just hit verse 1 quick. Uh, and he left there. Jesus left where he was, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. So just re remind ourselves where we're at. Uh, after chapter 8, Jesus, is, he was doing all this ministry up in the north, uh, up in, around the Sea of Galilee on both sides of it and north of it. And now, since chapter 8, uh, at the end of the chapter, he's making his way south to Jerusalem. And he's been telling his disciples along the way, when I get there, they're, they're going to mistreat me. They will, they will hand me over to uh, the hands of men. They will kill me. And then the third day I will rise from the dead. 
And interspersed throughout those uh, declarations of what's going to happen in Jerusalem, he's now teaching the disciples, what is it look, going to look like to actually follow me? And he's calling them to radical discipleship. He's turning all their views right on their head. So there's, we've seen things like uh, he's trying to help them see that they are not to be self-dependent anymore. They are supposed to be feeling helpless before God, such that help, Lord, is their common vocabulary. They have nothing in themselves for ministry. They need the work of God. He's been helping them to see their own pride as they are arguing, who's better than this? Who's better than that? We're better than this guy. He's been helping them to see their self-righteousness towards one another and towards other people. And we're better than those people. And he's trying to help them see, no, what you need to look at is your own self. Be far more concerned with what's going on in your own heart than other people. And everything is being turned on their head from what they learned. And here we get to a significant part where they're going to learn more discipleship. What, what does it actually look like to follow Jesus? And as we would expect, Jesus is teaching. Because remember, his primary ministry was not all the miracles. Even the miracles themselves, as we've watched through the book of Mark, were to be teaching. They're all instructive. And so he's teaching. And who comes to talk with Jesus again when he finds a resting place on his way to Jerusalem? It's the Pharisees. We haven't seen them for a while. But here they are. They show up. Verse 2, the Pharisees came up to Jesus in order to test him. And they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. We'll pause there so we can kind of catch what they're going after. If you notice in verse 2, they're there to test him, to trap him. We saw this in chapter 8. So this, this, the question that they're even asking, it's not even a genuine question. They're asking about divorce. Is it legal? Which actually was very common knowledge in the Jewish culture. Yes, divorce was legal. The question was, on what grounds? But they're trying to trap him. They want to, they want to catch him in a way uh, uh, so that he gets in trouble, so to say. And so you can almost picture them as they hear that Jesus is coming into town. The, the Pharisees round up together. They have another meeting. Because we learned in chapter 3, since chapter 3, they've been trying to find a way to kill Jesus. And so now they're having this meeting and they're, they're saying, okay, what? We got to do something to stop this man. And maybe one of them pipes up and says, I know, I got an idea. Let's, uh, let's tell everyone that the miracles he's been doing, he's actually doing it by the power of Satan. Yeah, yeah, he's a fake. And I say, no, 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 we tried that one already. He put us in our place on that one. Uh, oh, I, I know, I know. Let's, uh, let's, tell, let's tell the people that he's not doing the rituals of the, of the elders and the, the traditions. That, that, that his disciples, they didn't even wash their hands when, we, when they ate. No, we tried that one. Put us in our place on that one. Well, I know. Let, let's ask him a question, and let's, let's find a question that will actually, no matter which way he answers, somebody's going to be upset at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Sort of like when we were, we were just camping this week, and my oldest daughter, we were in a campground, state park or whatever, and uh, we were, I think we were on a way to get some water or something, we jumped, all jumped in the van, and she said, do I need to wear my seatbelt? And at the exact same moment, I said, no. And my wife said, yeah. And so <laughs> you could see on my daughter's face, she said, what should I do? What should I do? 
I'm either going against one of you, right? And so, or the, the whole old thing, you're playing a, you know, flip a coin, heads I win, tails you lose sort of thing. So they're, they're trying to trap Jesus. So no matter which way he answers this question, somebody's going to be upset at him. So how is that? Well, there's, there's a couple things going on here. Uh, one, in, in the culture at the time, the Jewish culture, there was two schools of thought in terms of what made for legal grounds of divorce. And they actually quote right from Deuteronomy 24. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read the opening part. Uh, Deuteronomy 24 says, says this, when, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her or writes, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her in the hand, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her in to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away cannot at that moment take her back again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that would be an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now this section, actually the command uh, that Moses is giving is that you can't send a woman away in divorce and then take her back after she's been remarried to someone else, right? But they're getting fixated on, the culture had gotten fixated on what this means when it says, when the husband has found some indecency in her. And so that's what the, the whole discussion became around. What, mean, what qualifies for indecency? And you had two schools of thought. One was uh, the, the minor, minority voice that said it had to be something very egregious like adultery. And only on those grounds could divorce happen. That was the indecency. But the majority voice basically said anything that the husband doesn't like qualifies for indecency. So there was, we have writings where it's something about her hair that he doesn't like, or some meal that she cooked, or she broke a dish, or said something about his mother-in-law, such like that, or her mother-in-law, so his mother. So virtually anything the guy didn't like about her, he could say, well, that, that's indecent and then write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And so, in this way then, no matter which way he answers it, he's going to have some, one of these groups upset at him. The other thing going on, though, is in this uh, the geographical setting that he is now in, he's actually in the area where Herod Antipas uh, rules. And if you remember Herod Antipas, we saw, we saw this story in chapter 6, remember? Uh, he had John the Baptist killed. And why did Herod have... John the Baptist killed because John the Baptist went to Herod, who was said to be under Jewish law, and said, you're in sin before God because you divorced your wife and you married your husband's wife. You can't do that. And so it's possible that they're just hoping that Jesus, assuming now Jesus and John are preaching the same message, that Jesus would answer this in such a way that it would make Herod upset and Herod will do the killing. He'll take care of him. He killed John the Baptist. Certainly he's going to go after Jesus and put this a stop to him. And so they're trying to trap Jesus so that uh, he will get in trouble by, with someone. And that's going to be important for us to see because that determines how Jesus answers the question. They're not coming with a genuine question like they have a, a woman with them who's in a severely terrible relationship or her husband's uh, getting prostitutes regularly. And they're trying to figure out what, what do we do with this woman? 
they're coming to trap him. And so that's going to determine how he answers uh, the question. But now, now is the moment of decision, right? What is Jesus going to say? They quote from Deuteronomy 24, Moses did allow a man to write a certificate of divorce. What's Jesus going to say? And there we see it. And Jesus said to them, it's because of your hard, the hardness of your own hearts that he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus here actually starts with what they're saying from Deuteronomy 24. And he's saying, look, yes, Moses wrote that, but he wasn't applauding divorce at that point. He's not saying divorce is good. In fact, later in the scriptures, the last uh, uh, chapter or last book of the, the Old Testament, it says God hates divorce. So it's not that God's saying divorce is good in Deuteronomy 4. He, he's giving a concession. He's realized, he, God sees the sinfulness of man and he's making a concession for the protection of the woman to prevent greater harm from happening. But he says it wasn't God's intention from the beginning. So he goes back. He says, hey, you know Moses said something else about marriage? Not just about divorce. He said something else at the very opening pages. You remember where marriage was set up. Where God took Adam and Eve. He took a man and a woman. And he made them into one flesh. Right? It's, it's, uh, if you think of, of Plato, you take a red and a yellow, and you bring them together and you squeeze them together, you now have one clump out of two. And it actually takes on a new color. It's, it's a new creation. And it's, when it says, hold fast to your wife, it's this idea of being glued together. And you're so held tightly together that God himself has taken a, a woman and a man and knit them together. And he says, when God does that, you don't have the authority to just go separate them. And you're asking the wrong question. You shouldn't be asking about what are, what are all the ground rules that we have and how close to the line we can get. You should be asking the question, what can we do to, to work so hard to, to make sure that this marriage lasts and we pursue that the way God intended it? And so why did Moses give the concession? But it was to protect the woman, especially in that culture. So a man, if, if he didn't like his wife and he would send, it was, would be custom to just send the woman off she couldn't get remarried. And in that culture, how is she going to survive, especially if she has children? And so the, the certificate of divorce was actually a paper that they, it, would, it would basically tell everybody, I'm eligible to be married again, so that she can actually be cared for and survive and the kids survive. So it's actually a concession. It's meant to protect the woman, to prevent greater evil from happening. And so in one sense, when they're asking Jesus, is it legal, he's, it's, it's sort of like him saying, well, yes, but that's not God's intention. The divorce was to protect the woman, not to find a loophole so you can get out of your marriage. What you should be asking is, what can I do to live with my wife forever until God calls me home? That's what you should be asking. And for... For the crowd there, this is radical. This is something that they haven't considered. And for the disciples, this is radical. And you can tell because verse 10, uh, they've left the, the crowd. Now, now they go home, and they still got this question on their mind. 
Verse 10, in the house, the disciples, they ask him again about this matter. And so you can, you can picture the scene. They've, they've probably been thinking about this all the way back to the house. Finally, they, they get in the house, the door closes, and it's just silent. They're looking at Jesus. Did you really mean that, what you said about marriage? Like, you're, you're saying we're supposed to stay married to, to our wife forever? Like, even if she's annoying to us? Like, you mean like 10 years, like 20 years, the, the, the same woman? Is that what you mean? And so Jesus then says, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against his first wife. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, well, then she commits adultery. It's just very point blank. Now, we should pause a minute here to, to realize what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying here. What Jesus is not saying here is that divorce is never permitted because we do have other places like Matthew 19 where he actually does say that something like adultery is grounds for divorce. Or the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, if uh, an unbelieving husband has abandoned uh, the wife. But Jesus is not dealing with that kind of question right now. Remember, they first came to trap him. They're, they're trying to uh, get him to say something that would disrupt everything. They're not, they don't have a real case of someone that's uh, in a really bad marriage or anything like that. They're, just, they're trying to put, put him in a place where he says something wrong. So Jesus is attacking that. He's not even dealing with the exception here. He's trying to re, recreate or redirect them what they should be thinking about. Not so much what, what can we do to get out of this, but what can you do to stay in it and actually live the way that God intended marriage to be. So he's, he's not saying that there's never uh, exceptions. He's not even dealing with that, um, which also then means he's not automat- saying that automatically divorce and you get remarried is adultery, even though the language feels like that because he's not dealing with the exception clauses. Because the reality is, if somebody does have biblical, legitimate grounds to divorce, then they therefore have legitimate, biblical grounds to remarry. And we actually have a policy paper that we we can gladly get in your hands uh, that follows this line of reasoning uh, for for us. Um, This passage is also not dealing with uh, this idea that the church is called to save marriages. And I just bring that up because sometimes when you get stuck on these, these passages... Uh, people, we can have this sense as if when there's a bad marriage, it's the church's responsibility to fix it and keep it together. And that's just not the, the church's role. We don't have that kind of power. We can't change people's hearts. Our role when there's a bad marriage is to call people to repent. We're supposed to hold up what God calls uh, people to. We call them to turn from their sin and turn towards God. And we, we call one another to forgive one another. But we can't fix people. And it's, that's not the church's role. And if people were calling them to repent and turn and they refused to, then that's where the Matthew 18 sort of stuff comes in, where we say, brother or sister, you seem to be rebelling against God, what he's calling you to do, and therefore you're looking like an unbeliever here. And we have no other choice but to, but to assume maybe you're not following the Lord, maybe you are not one of his people, and declare that, as best we can tell, you are walking out a step of a person of God, and therefore we declare that we don't know that you're true believer. And that's the best we can do as a way of hopefully 
warning the person and calling them into the faith as a, as a way of uh, re- bringing that person back into fellowship. But we don't have the authority to change people. Uh, and the other thing that this passage is not saying, because it's very, it's very strong, uh, Jesus is not saying that people who have been divorced are beyond God's grace, that they're, they're beyond God's redeeming and renewing grace at all. I know that there are people in the room that have been a part of, of divorce, and that causes a lot of pain. I know some, some people have described a divorce as, like, as, as death, because there is something that dies of the person that's being divorced. Or one illustration I heard once that I thought was helpful is if you take two plants and you, you put them in the same pot, over the years, all the roots will get intertwined, right? And if you're going to try to separate one of the plants out of it, it, it the plant can make it, but not without parts of it being severed, right? And when God knits people together as one flesh and, and something tears it apart, there's a death that happens. And if you've if experienced that, if you're one of the ones that was the offending party, the, the one that actually caused the divorce, and we would call you to repent and turn to God if you have not and find the forgiveness that God offers. You are not beyond God's grace. And if you are one who have been offended and mistreated in, in a relationship of marriage, then we, we call you to come under the wings of the Lord and find comfort, find rest, find healing, and find the ability to forgive. But what this passage is saying is that God is the one who designs marriage, and he's the one that gets to declare what's right and wrong. Right? We don't have that authority. We don't come and tell God what's, what we think is right. We come and ask God what he declares is right. He's the one that has declared that divorce is permitted as a concession to protect uh, an, an offended individual, but that our call is to pursue marriage as God intended. That should be our pursuit with everything that we have. And for the disciples, this is radical, absolutely radical. So in Matthew 19, when Matthew writes about this, the disciples are sitting there listening to Jesus talk like this, and their response to Jesus at this point, when they hear, whoa, I have to be married to the, 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 the wife that I have forever until God calls me home? Then they respond to Jesus and say, Jesus, if that's true for a man, it's better for him not even to get married. You can look it up. That's what they say in Matthew 19. This is absolutely radical for them. Now, we can think of ourselves and say, well, you know, we, we don't have that kind of view of the disciples. That was pretty poor. Um, we, we do think about marriage as one, one spouse for life, and that, that's great. But the reality is we get pretty close to where the disciples feel. Maybe not all the time, but we feel it. I remember the first time I felt it. We were about a year and a half, two years into marriage. I'm driving down to Chicago um, for a morning class, and all of a sudden the thought just landed on me like a ton of bricks. I thought, what did I get myself into? I'm going to have to be married to this woman forever. I don't even like her sometimes. I annoy her. She annoys me. This could last for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 60. I'm going to wake up next to her for that long. And I just, it was like panic landing on me. How in the world am I going to have power to do that? We're going to get sick of each other. And nobody had really coached me that at some point you're going to have those thoughts. And if you're married, 
uh, you, you can, I'm sure, tell others. Uh, I don't think I'm the only person that's had that thought. <laughs> that this is going to land on you. Marriage is very, very hard. And now I feel like I'm in the middle of a, a wedding sermon here. Uh, but but we, we, know, we know this, right? You're, you're two very different people. You're different genders. You have different personalities, different likes, different dislikes, different uh, strengths, different weaknesses, different idiosyncrasies, different things that annoy you, different preferences. You're just very, very different. And in all of your houses, it's going to look very different as well. And some of the differences you don't even realize until you're married and a couple years in. And you're like, you're like that? Why didn't you tell me that? I mean, for example, at our house, um, this is in our house, uh, my wife likes the house to look simple and clean, neat, colors matching and such like that. Uh, so even like, it, what do you call that? Uh, what do you call those cabinets in the dining room? The, the built-ins, yeah, there you go. Um, there's like, you know, a lot of them, it's like white dishes and then there's a, there's like the same color that threads through or whatever. It's like all looks really nice, you know. She likes it clean and nice. A couple pictures. She's, she takes a long time to find the right picture to put on the wall. She likes the paint to match. And I mean, for me, I'm not, I'm not like that. I, I really don't do color matching well. In fact, I think it was Tally, our oldest, she was around four, who I was coloring with her, and she said, Dad, those colors don't match. <laughs> and she handed me a different crayon, and I did, and I said, what? You're, that, that's beautiful, you're right. You know, so I, don't, I don't have an eye for that. And so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything with the walls. Like, what do, I, what do I want to put a hole in the wall for? Then I'm going to have to fix it at some point. I don't want to do that, you know? Well, actually, no, that's not true. If I, if I, was, if I had my own place and I was single, I, w I would have things. I, I would put hooks on the wall that would hold softball bats that I'm using in games, and I would be able to stare at those. That would be the only thing that would go on the wall. Maybe we'll do that. <laughs> or for uh, dinner, uh, Danica likes, uh, she makes these great dinners for us, and she always makes sure we have our vegetables, we've got our fruit, we've got our protein, and we've got our carbohydrates. There's the right measures of all of them, and make sure you get it on your plate, right? And that, that's good. It cares for us as a family, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, me, when it's my turn to make dinner, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really know all those things. I just basically pile a big pasta dish and plop it down. I take a big scoop, and bam, that's what's for dinner. You got <laughs> Neither one of those are better or worse. Well, hers is probably is better at that point. But it's just different, right? We're just different people. Or if you think about, you know, how long it took for, uh, if just time-wise, for both of us to do our hair this morning, you know? Like, <laughs> who took longer? And actually, it takes me a lot longer to get this thing polished like that. It takes a while. You've got to take, be careful, right? <laughs> We're just different people, right? Now, a lot of times, I'm, I'm sharing silly stuff, but sometimes those cut very, very deep. Right? How are you going to spend your money she wants more projects done around the house. I want to do more hobbies. What is intimacy going to look like? How do you deal with conflict? How do you discipline the children? How do you apologize to one another? 
and on and on. We could have this long list of just things that are different, not necessarily right or wrong. They're just different how we approach life, and it hurts. And you don't like it. And not only that, are we just different, but we are also sinners. We will sin against one another, right? You will say something sharp to your spouse. Your spouse will say something sharp to you. Cold shoulders, grumbling against one another, facial expressions that show disgust. And the, the person that is meant to be your, your best friend in the world that knows you the, the, the deepest is the one sinning against you. And that's painful. The reality is in marriage, you're basically putting your own heart on a chopping block. And your spouse has the ability to either shave off that, that part you don't want to eat, the fat, and get rid of that and clean you up. Or they can chop you right in half. And so when we sin against one another, it's painful. So that we're different, we sin against one another. But what, what really makes it hard then is when you're experiencing those things, is the fact that it's permanent. Other relationships aren't, right? We have more freedom in other relationships. Friends can part ways when they disagree or sin against one another. It doesn't mean you don't forgive, you, you make up, but you can part ways. Jobs, you don't like your job, you can part ways. Your neighborhood, you can, you can move to a new neighborhood, right? All these things, you can, you can move. When you're married, it's permanent. There is no ejection sheet, uh, seat. You know, like on a jet fighter firelighter, you just eject yourself out. There isn't one. And that makes it all the more difficult. And, and you get to the place in those moments, like the disciples, and say, how in the world am I going to do this? And I wish I could tell you that, you know, after you get through that first couple, two years, and you have that feeling, then you move on, and you never have it again. I've been married 20 years, and I know I'm still going to have it. And there was one just a couple years ago that was real bad, maybe four or five years ago. I remember we, I came home for lunch, and... Uh, we were having some sort of a disagreement, and I remember getting in the car and driving away and just wanting to scream, Ah! Why? Why do I got to be married? It's very, very hard. And so how, how are you going to have power to actually pursue marriage as God intended? Because God intended marriage to be for life and beautiful and joyful. How are we going to find that kind of power? And that's where the next scene actually happens, verse 13 in the writing, there's no shift. There's no geographical change. It's, it's right in. It's, it just makes it look like right there where they're at, they start bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples, they're upset. They, re, they rebuke them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Because to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, they shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, we talked about children the last couple weeks here. Uh, Jesus using children as an illustration in this uh, section. Remember, children, uh, they they were not the adored ones in the community. They were actually one of the lowest on the totem pole, a little bit different than our culture here. Right? They didn't have special, quote-unquote, rights uh, that, that everybody needed to care for them so closely. Uh, they were not, the family didn't orient themselves around the child. The child had to fit into the family. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the children didn't make it to maturity. Uh, There's a, a very high uh, child death rate. Um, a good word to maybe sum it up would be that the children were unworthy. 
They were just unworthy people in the community. And especially in this scene, that's exactly what's going on with the disciples. They, they are unworthy for Jesus' time. They're not that important for Jesus. They're unworthy for kindness from Jesus. They don't deserve it. They're lower on the totem pole. You reserve Jesus' time for the more important people. The children are not worthy. Now, it might be hard for us to think of children that way. So think of someone in the community that you might think is unworthy. It might be for different reasons, but we just think of people as unworthy sometimes. So maybe, maybe there's a work project or something, and you, you're working on it as a team, and there's one individual that he hardly does anything. He's doing a fraction of the work, and everybody else on the team has to pick up the slack. And so you do it. The project is a great hit, and you, everybody actually gets a nice bonus from the project, and he gets the same bonus. And everybody on the team's like, are you crazy? The guy didn't do anything. He's unworthy. He hasn't deserved it. Or these other people you can think of in the community that, you know, maybe they, they've just blown things. And that's that we have a high value of work hard and then you get your reward. There's other people. Think of someone that is unworthy for good treatment. And that's where Jesus then turns around in verse 15 and says, whoever does not receive the kingdom like one who is unworthy, coming to Jesus as one who is unworthy for kindness from Jesus, who knows that deep inside, if you don't know that, you will not receive the kingdom. And so what Jesus is calling us to then here in verse 15 is a call to know yourself as unworthy. You're an unworthy recipient of the kingdom, an unworthy bride, you would say. If you're a follower of Christ, do you worship him as the Christ? Then you are part of the unworthy bride. You sin against the Lord, and you are worthy of his judgment, not his kindness. You don't deserve any kindness from Jesus today. You don't deserve his patience. You don't deserve his faithfulness. You deserve his judgment because you've sinned against him. You've grumbled against him in your heart, whether it be about the weather or about your circumstances at, at, the, at work. You've tried to find your significance in things of the world, your career or relationships. We try to find our comfort and our hope in reputation. We have prideful thoughts towards other people. We have lustful thoughts. If you start really looking at yourself, you should realize we are a mess. That's why the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life in 1 Timothy, he's writing Timothy, and he says, Timothy, the saying is trustworthy, and it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And of sinners, you line them all up. Paul says, I am the foremost. He doesn't say I was the foremost, but present tense, I am the foremost. I can promise you this. If any of us knew the Apostle Paul for more than a week, you would never say that Paul was one of the worst sinners you've ever met. But what, what happened is, as Paul continued to grow and learn who God was, he could see inside and just see how sinful he truly was, so that he said, I am so unworthy of God's kindness. So unworthy, it's so deep, so dark, and yet he is kind to me. And Paul then returned to worship 
Because the only reason he stands righteous before God is because of the gospel of Jesus. That yes, he is unworthy, but Christ comes because of his mercy and loves Paul and gives his life for Paul. And that's meant to light up our soul. So what, how are we supposed to find power for marriage? That's how we have to link these passages together. You might say it this way, that though my spouse may be unworthy of my kindness, it does not compare how unworthy I am for the kindness of Jesus. My wife is not always worthy of my kindness. I'm not always worthy of her kindness. But it does not compare with how truly unworthy we are for kindness from Christ. We do not deserve it at all. We are unworthy of his kindness. And when we can see that, it actually gives us power to turn and offer kindness to our spouse. So we need to know ourselves as the unworthy bride of Christ, but we also need to know ourselves as the unworthy bride of Christ. And we've had some weddings here recently, and I remember thinking about this, especially in Revelation, uh, when we were in that a couple years ago. But uh, always a good picture to think about. As you, as you see a groom waiting right in front of the aisle, waiting for the bride to come forward, it's a powerful moment. And it'd be wonderful if we could place uh, like a microphone inside the minds and hearts of the different people in the auditorium during that point. You might, you might hear from the, the little niece of, of the bride-to-be, and you know, maybe she's saying, Oh, I can't wait to see her dress. She's going to look so beautiful. I can't wait. And if you could hear maybe the, one of the siblings of the bride-to-be, they'd say, oh, I'm so excited for her. She's wanted this day for so long, and he's such a good match. And you could hear the, the mom as she stands, and she's like, oh, my baby, my baby, I can't believe she's getting married. Oh, I can't believe this. And then you get, you get into the, the groom, the husband-to-be, and all he can say is, yes. Oh, she's so pretty. Oh, she's so beautiful. Oh, she's so precious to me. I laid down my life for that woman. Oh, I want to care for her. Oh, I adore her. Oh, how I love her. Oh, how joyful she makes me. And brother and sister, if you are a follower of Christ, that is how he views you. You are unworthy for that kind of kindness. You have sinned against him. You do not deserve his patience. You do not deserve his gentleness. You do not deserve his faithfulness. And yet, in his kindness, because he has shed his blood for you, he says, oh, how I adore you. I sing over you. And when we can see that, when we can feel that, as me, an unworthy recipient of God's kindness like that, we then have power to turn around and say, yes, my spouse may be unworthy, but I can offer them that kind of love. Because I've been filled up with the kindness of Christ. I can give them some back. And with that, we turn to the Lord's Supper as we reflect on the fact that is, the Lord's Supper reminds us that indeed we are unworthy. We are sinners. It was, it was because we have sinned that the, the Lord's Supper, what it pictures, Christ's death, it had to happen. And yet we are the very bride of Christ. If you're here this morning and are a follower of Jesus, uh, we invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper, provided that you are walking with the Lord in repentant faith. It's not about perfection, but about direction. You're striving to walk with Jesus. 
in all that he commands you to. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not walking with the Lord or you not profess Jesus as the Christ, uh, then we ask that you not partake. Uh, but if you're here this morning, you worship Jesus in repentant faith, then we invite you to come forward. Uh, come grab the elements and then we will partake together.